Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the Huddersfield Town Sporting Director, Mark Cartwright. Mark, big warm welcome to the show. Thanks, Connor. How are you doing? All good. All good. As we were saying, uh, unfortunately, the winter's starting to set into Canada. So I hope it's, well, I doubt it's that much warmer where you are now in Huddersfield. No, probably not. And I don't know if you can see, but it's a little bit misty out there today. It's a proper Yorkshire welcome to everybody, I believe. But um, Yorkshire and Canada are apart now. Merrick, as you know, what we begin as is open and tradition on every podcast here in the lowdown, we begin by asking, could you please take us through your earliest football memory? Oh, crikey. That's my earliest football. The, the, the earliest football, real sort of football memory, I think, is my... Um, there's, there's several, but I would say... My dad um, was a big football fan, um, and he, you know, he he would you know take me to games when he could. Um, the family were from from North Wales, so Wrexham was the sort of closest team. So there were there were some real uh, games there. But I, I think the, the the real game that stood out for me was um, Wales played England, and it was the last ever international at, uh, at the racecourse ground at Wrexham, and. Um, Half of my family are English and half of my family are Welsh. So I had my dad sat on one side and my uncle sat on the other. And uh, Mark Hughes scored scored a great um, it was a volley from the from the edge of the box. And of course, my dad and, and this side of the family all jumped up and he he's, he's pulled me up with one arm and, and my uncle's pulling me down with the other. Because uh, so you know that was one of the the first you know sort of real insights into football and how it can divide families and how you know everything else that goes along with it the passion from one side and the, the utter dejection from the other um but no it's great there's, there's, there's lots listen football's been an amazing place for me it's given me um so many good memories along along my journey that there's there's probably too many to mention but you know for every high there's also been a low and i think you have to you have to balance them out as you as you go through it yeah, and you know, I have to say, in prepping research for this podcast, I mean, it's quite indicative of your career being that non-linear pathway. I mean, you've gone and you've done several roles, from being a goalkeeper to being an agent to being a coach, and before settling on the role as sporting director. I mean, Mark, for someone with such a kind of love and affection for the game, that's experienced the highs, the lows, trials, and jubilations. What's enthralled you the most about the role of sporting director? Um. I think to to be a uh, in this role, you, you want you want to be a builder. You want to uh, you want, to, and it's the same for being an agent. And I think the the two do mirror themselves a little bit because as an agent, you want to see your player get to the highest level he can, and you can you can literally see it in your in your head as to what he needs to do and how he needs to. Get. So you can map out a pathway for that for that player. So if you if you bring that into a club. Again, it's seeing where you want the club to get to, where you want the players from the academy, how do they get into the first team, how do you make the first team better. To, and you start mapping it out again so that it, the club become can become stronger and better in little steps. You know, not um, not too quickly because that can that can fail, but in slow steps. So you're putting the building blocks in place to get the, the whole club to a place that, where it's in a, in a better arena both on the on the pitch but also off the pitch as well so i think to to really get into this role you you've got to want to see development you've got to be able to see development you've got to be able to put those plans in place 
And, I mean, it's easy to connect the dots looking backwards. I mean, upon reflection and hindsight, was there any characteristics that you showed in your early days, in your footballing journey that stood out to you that kind of remind you of the qualities or of the characteristics of someone that you would call a builder that goes into these organisations and builds out developmental plans? Uh, no, not, not really. It was a bit weird. I mean, my, my playing career, so as it does with most people, it's, it passes you by, it goes really quickly. And it's not until you get the, the magical number three in your age that you suddenly start thinking, right, what, what's going to happen after, after the game? Um, and then you start thinking about everything. You know, do I want to be a coach? Do I want to be a manager? And, and at the time I was finishing the game, the sporting director wasn't really there. Um, I'm not even sure anybody in this country had it. You know, at that point, it was very much the old school. The manager did everything. Um, so the only real route for an ex-player at that time was, was do you become a, a coach? Do you go back into mainstream life, which is very difficult because you, you've lived in a bubble of football for such a long time that, you know, things are skewed a little bit. Um, but, you know, the agency side of things was just starting to pick up as I was finishing. Uh, you know, I'd done the degree in America. I'd done my own contracts and players slowly started asking me for advice. And I sort of fell into that without actually considering it to be a real route because whereas now I think, you know, you've got coaching, you've got agency, you've got uh, all the sporting directorship courses, whether that's into the sort of C-suite levels or whatever it is, you know, there are now options available to players that weren't really there when I was there. But I think, um, like I say, when you go down that agency route, you, you pretty much got the, the building blocks to become a sporting director because um, you're already negotiating contracts, you're already planning players' careers, you know, you're doing deals, you're, you're recruiting, you're scouting, you're doing everything, you know, um, you're analysing the, 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 the stable of players that you've got. So you're sort of doing each little bit along the way, um, whilst also sort of trying to instil into them, don't make mistakes, don't do, and certainly, you know, for me, I've made a lot of mistakes and they're good experiences to, to tell players about. Don't make the mistakes that I made, you need to do it in a different, different way or you've got a long-term injury, I've been there, I know what you're going through, Don't you need to stay focused, you need to stay on track. So it's all that um, advice giving and, and sort of, I guess, leadership skills that you don't know you're doing, but you're doing them. Um, and, and like I say, now, you know, with the, the courses that are out there, this is a real viable option for players as they come to the end of their career. Yeah, and it's interesting there you're speaking of all these different skill sets as different building blocks and, you know, I suppose at the end of the day there's no real substitute for experience, you know, but largely zooming out we're looking at this sporting director role as one of not necessarily even a specialist, generalist, and there's many different ways, many different pathways into that mm. role. No, there, there, there is, absolutely, and I think, um, I can't remember, I was talking to uh, an ex uh, an ex player I had at Stoke at the weekend and, and he was sort of saying how'd you get into this and what what do i need to do uh, you know i've done the, the sporting directorship course what you know how, how do i get onto the next steps and and it's really um like i said to him look you don't need to be an expert in every single field but you have to have knowledge of every single field because you're employing the expert to be the head of that department and they they've got to come to you and my advice to him is look go into every every part of the club 
spend an afternoon, spend a day, whatever it is. Don't just don't just be a lazy footballer. Train, well, you're not late because you're training, but don't finish at two o'clock or whenever it is and go home. Stay, see what the medical department does, see what the analytical department does, see what the kitchen does. You know, because these are all big elements of the club that you're going to have to handle if you if you get to that level. So go and get that experience of and understanding of what it what it's going to look like. Don't go into it blind, you know. Um, and that's the biggest thing for me is 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 you know it's great to have the courses, it's great to be given the content, but as you say, experience is massive. So how but how do you get the experience? Well, you've got to go and earn it somehow. Whether if you're already at a club or can you go and shadow a club? Greta Steinson is a perfect example of all that because. Greta finished his playing career and then, um, you know, he went back to Iceland where he's from and I think he went back to his, I'm not entirely sure, so don't don't quote me if I'm wrong, but I think he went back to the club he started his career at and he literally, free of charge obviously, went into every single department and learnt about every single department and, you know, gained knowledge of everything and then when he came back here, and he got his opportunity at Fleetwood, he already knew what a club was about. He already knew what it needed to be to be built to get it to that next level. And he did a great job at Fleetwood and he got his move from Fleetwood, I think, to Everton, Everton to Spurs, and now he's at Leeds. You know, so it's how do you you've got to find a USP somewhere, you know. So what what he did was to go and get that knowledge to make that his his special thing. And Fleetwood saw something in him that said, Yeah, he's gonna be successful. And that's what people have got to do it's not going to be it's not just about your name it's not just about the type of playing career you've had it's going to be about <clears throat> what experience can you garner along the way exactly that and i mean you know nowadays with even more notoriety surrounding the role mark you said the best there you need to have that usp you need to have that competitive edge and in fact it, you know it's reminiscent of your own journey especially that pathway into stoke city at the time, you'd have to say the sporting director role was largely that of European-based. And obviously, Stoke City wanted to revamp their recruitment structure and revamp what they were doing with respect to the academy. You may be able to tell the audience listening as to how you how that series of events unfold and how, in fact, you were actually able to achieve both those missions. Um, I think the it was about... So the club at the time wanted to open up to world um you know they, they they'd signed a lot of players from england for high prices that played had really really good careers but then there was no resale value you know so they sort of wanted to get on the transfer marketplace you know could you could you bring somebody in for a lower value could you you know develop them and push them forward and sell them for high value and then that money would go back in and again it was the same with the academy um it was a you know the the coach family invested heavily into the academy because they're they're Stoke people, and so they were they you know they were always keen to develop their own players, um, and but again it, it comes down to you know recruitment and bringing the right people in and, and being able to give them a clear pathway and not block them you know not block the route through to the first team, um, and so you know can you could you start that so I mean it took me five years. At Stoke to get the players through that you're bringing in in the academy through to the first team. So it's not a quick fix. You can't just click your fingers. The first team you can fix a lot quicker 
because you get transfer windows every summer and every January. Um, so it was just understanding um, where we were financially, understanding what was out in the marketplace, what fitted the manager's uh, playing style, what fitted the, the DNA of Stoke, and, and trying to give options that were um, viable, really. You know, don't go and try and sign Messi. You know, it's, it wasn't going to happen. You know, we didn't have that budget and so on. So, but we could go and sign Bojan, or we could sign Mario Niesa, or Afalai, all players from Barcelona that were looking for that next step. They were looking to, you know, maybe it hadn't worked out fully, or they'd, you know, Barcelona was now a step too big for them, but coming to Stoke, putting them in the, the Premier League, you know, the greatest show on earth, so to speak, was exactly what they needed and wanted, and, and they shone for us. Um, you know, and we had a lot of success doing that. But again, you know, also had a very good manager in place, you know, that could handle the players, that knew how to deal with foreign players, because, you know, that that's that was a new experience for Stoke, um, how to deal with, you know, not non-English players, really, or players that hadn't already been in England for five or six years. So it was just um, putting all the pieces of the jigsaw into place, really, and then getting into the point where, you know, it then translates itself onto the pitch. But there's so many people that have an involvement in this. And, you know, certainly um, everybody within a football club needs to realise that what they do has an effect to the, on the first team. And I think sometimes they don't see that, so you just have to remind them that even if it's, you know, the chef that's putting the fuel in, inside the players, if he's giving them the wrong nutrients, then they're not going to perform correctly. But, you know, they have to understand the role they play. So you have to be the motivator, the you know, builder, um, the guy that puts everything together. You've got to be all these this person, but you're sort of in the background a little bit because it's the manager that is the front of house that's speaking to the press, that's talking about what the first team are doing and the plans. And you have to get the culture and the DNA and the fit absolutely right for it to to work out. You know, and you're right too. You I mean you speak about instigating cultural change there, Americans. It's not a it's not a easy process. It's not a timely process <laughs> either. In Stoke City's case, it took five years there, but I'm most intrigued to learn a little bit more about is obviously we're going in there and using the chef as an example. I mean, how else would you go about identifying and navigating organizational bottlenecks as such within a football club? Um, in terms of what? In terms of player development or in terms of just staff in general? I would say in terms of staff in general, folks on the bigger picture of everything is geared now towards the first team. So I, I think it's... Um, <laughs> It's like um, it's like a squad, you know. You get a certain squad of players, and if there's a, if we take a managerial change, for example, then there will be a percentage of that squad that absolutely buy into that managerial change, and absolutely are prepared to go on the journey with that manager. And then you'll get players that aren't quite technical enough or aren't cultural enough to fit into the style of play, and they will slip out of the pecking order. And then you'll get the players that don't want to go on the journey at all. And again, they slip out of the squad. So you naturally see those that are sort of slipping to the sides that can't keep up or aren't willing to keep up. And they're the ones that sort of have to be um, changed. So I think, again, as you relate to staff within the football club, as, as you are starting and going on this journey, you'll have the same natural sort of wastage. You'll, you'll be the ones that say, well, 
I've never done it like this before. I don't want to do it like this. This isn't how we've done it here for the last 10 years. So they'll be the ones that don't want to come on a journey. And then there'll be the ones that just aren't quite good enough to come on the journey with you as well. And then it's the, the harsh reality of football. If they're, not, if they're not quite good enough or if they're not going to do it, you've got to get rid of them and bring in people that can, again, start to supplement the first team and where the first team is going and how do we make them better. You've got to keep improving every step of the way. Yeah, and you know what? That goes back to one of the key metrics always. A sporting director will be evaluated upon, Mark, is, of course, their performance against resources. And that's something, obviously, in numerous roles from Stoke City to the USL to the current day at Huddersfield Town, you've always prided yourself on. Yeah. So for me, I mean, what are some of the key tenets there in getting right from day one in setting that overarching mission and vision where it's basically not a bear so low to be that you can hurdle easily, but it's a bear not too high that it's demotivating? Um, I think you've got to understand what's in place already. And I think... Um, you go into any environment and you have to spend time figuring it out. You can't go in there with be the hatchet man and clear everybody out. Um, you have to you have to look and you have to listen. And I think um, people's natural tendency when they go into a role is to talk, whereas actually the reality is you should be listening. You should be listening to the views of other people. What is the actual day-to-day working of the environment that you're in you know, how does it work and then you you know then you make the decisions based on what you're seeing and what you're hearing and, and where you want to take it at some point you have to sit down with everybody and talk about the vision talk about um you know in some respects a mission statement this is who we are this is what we're going to be um and then you know couple that with the vision um this is the dna of a of a of an individual that is going to work at this club and you, you know, that, that DNA isn't just the player. It should be the whole environment. It should be the whole organization. You know, if you want to be, to bring in players that are committed, hardworking, uh, innovative, humble, you know, X, blah, blah, blah. Well, why can't the person in the ticket office be like that as well? You know, can you ingrain the same culture all the way through the training ground and the ground? Um, and I think it's just about, Sometimes it's drip feeding. Sometimes it's just keeping people's head above water until you can actually get to a point where you can change and you can start afresh and make that cultural shift. And sometimes you have to wait six months, 12 months. Sometimes you have to wait less than that. It just depends on the environment and what you're seeing. You know, um, we were very, very um, lucky here because, you know, new owner, new chief exec, new sporting director, um, we can start to instill what we want a lot quicker than you can at a, um, a fully established ownership group, a fully established um, set of staff around the place. So, you know, it's, um, I think you've just got to look and listen and then you'll know the right time, when is the right time to, to sort of press that reset button. And of course, all of that is within the context of one football club and at Sork City, of course, it was connecting Stoke to the global or the European marketplace as such. But what about being a sporting director for a huge organization such as the United Soccer League here in North America, Mark? Because that, as you know, might as well be a whole continent out of itself with a footprint all over the US. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that was... um, That was... uh, You'd literally gone from dealing, like you say, one club to suddenly 40 professional clubs 
a whole host of um, academy teams as well that are trying to develop players and push players forward. You're also dealing with the the federation there on how do you you know how do play how do people not have the play the young players that they're developed taken off them, you know because there's no training compensation internally there is externally. Um, so it was um, it was it was interesting. Um, because I came in and I remember the, the president, Jake Edwards, saying to me, right, I'd literally got there. Two weeks, we're holding our summer conference. All the clubs are going to be there, all the owners, presidents, GMs. Um, you've got to present what your plans are going forward. Right, okay. Whew, crikey. Um, so you, you spend the whole host of time putting together a PowerPoint and your speech and everything else. And I'm, I'm sat there feeling really good about myself and... And I show it to him and he sort of looks at me and he's like, mm, not quite sure with that. And I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? And it took me a little while. You know, I kept, I, I tweaked it and sent it back to him. And then eventually uh, I, he said, I sat down with him. He said, who have you, who've you put that presentation together for? I thought I'd put it together for you, you know, for the audio. And he said, no, no, no. Who, who are you speaking to? When you're looking at this presentation, who are you speaking to? I said, well, I'm speaking to, you know, my peers, whether that's Mike Rigg, Nick Hammond, Ross Wilson, Kevin Thelwell, you know, Steve Walsh, I'm, I'm speaking to them. He said, no, 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 you've got to speak to the to the owners and the presidents of our league. Um, and then I went through, I did a little bit more research and then it clicked. You know, this was a, I was, I was dealing with a league where player contracts were only one year with a, maybe a one year option. Um, there were no real transfer fees and the owners genuinely saw the players as their biggest liability. So I knew my first task then was to flip that on its head because your player is your biggest asset. Yes, that's where the bulk of the money goes in, in terms of out of the club, but they're your biggest asset. So I literally flipped the entire presentation because I suddenly realized what I was dealing with, you know, um, and again, you know, it was that it was that awakening of what that was going to be and how could we do it. Um, and it was just about, but I understood where they came from because I'd been at a club. You know, I knew that they, they don't want to go and spend hundreds of millions of dollars building and putting players in and everything else. They want to develop and they want to do X, Y, and Z. So it was then a case of, of right, I now know exactly what I need to do and how can I how can I feed that to them slowly um, so it was literally start with the players are your biggest asset go into team value management and where do you where can you build the growth throughout your team is the infrastructure of your club correct have you ever done a transfer have you got a top player so it was little blocks that and they were so keen and eager to learn and they did you know I think we went from zero to 1.5 million in in the space of two years in terms of transfers and the amount of younger players getting contracts and getting longer contracts but were higher and they were recruiting better you know they were going and taking players from mls academies and and utilizing the fact that there wasn't any training compensation and bringing them in and then moving them on to europe so it was there was a real pathway of player development and player transfers coming through within the whole league and everybody was excited to get involved. So, um, you know, long may that continue within the USL, but it was literally 40 different egos at the, at the top level, 40 different egos 
at the president, 40 different egos with the head coaches. So it was a real learning curve and a bit of a, a head spinner as to how much, you know, you had to, and all the clubs were at different levels as well of their development. So whereas, you know, if you're in an established market like England, you know, they all have a certain infrastructure. They all have a certain amount of staff. They all have this, they all have that. Whereas America, you know, you had a brand new franchise that was just starting from nothing to, you know, to a Louisville, for example, that were had a fully functioning academy, full stadium, you know, so there was different levels. So it was a real, it was a really exciting learning curve for me as well. Um, and then you come back to one club and you, you start again. Yeah, and it segues nicely into the present day, but, you know, just going back to the USL too, because obviously you, you spoke earlier on about the sporting director, Mark, it's more to do with listening rather than it is to speaking. Obviously there you touched upon 40 different clubs, 40 different egos at the helm. Um, mm. You know, clubs from all over the country. And I don't think people from the outside realise how geographically diverse the yeah. United States is as a whole. And then you have clubs that you franchises to an established club such as Louisville City. I mean, how do you even go about attacking that in terms of stakeholder communication and relationship? Did you learn to delegate even more finely? I mean, how do you bring 40 different clubs to the same drawing board? Uh, you don't, is, is the honest answer. Um, again, you'll get a bit like we were talking about natural wastage. You'll get some that are ahead of the game and you're just pushing them further further along. And then you'll get the ones that want to join the game and that you're leading them into the arena, you're sort of holding a hand and you're developing them, helping them. And then you get the ones that just think it's a load of bullshit and they're going to do it how they want to do it. Um, and of course, you can help them in different areas, um, you know, whether that's player contracts or whatever, or infrastructures. Um, but you're not going to be able to help everybody because there's always there's always somebody that thinks they know better. Um, and there's always somebody that, like we say, you know, well, this is the way I've always done it. So this is the way I'm going to always do it. Um, so you don't you don't bring everybody along, but ultimately what you'll do is if you get out of that 40, 20 of the clubs go down a certain model and they're the ones developing the players, selling the players, winning the championships, you know, et cetera, et cetera, then you'll get another 10 to 15 that want to join that group and then you'll get the ones that don't want to join the group. Um, so again, but then it's it's about communication. You know, it's your communication skills and, and you'll also you'll know who wants what. So some people will want phone calls. Some want, people will want in-person visits. Some people will want emails. You know, you get to learn what, what ticks the box for, for each individual. Uh, and I think a lot of the skills you have as an agent where you're dealing with all these different clubs and understanding, you know, all these different cultures. When you're working across Europe, Germany is different to France, France is different to Spain, you know, everything is different to China or to Korea, you know, and you learn how to handle each different environment. And like you say, America is that big. It is like uh, dealing with a, a France, a Spain, a Germany, because they're all different mindsets, even though it's the same one big country. So I think you sort of take that skill as an agent into how do I get how do I get my message across? What's the best way to get it across? How do I deliver it? Um, and do they actually want to be helped or not? 
you know, and that's the that's the simple fact. But it was um, it was a it was a hugely satisfying role because again, I learned so much as well. You know, I learned what a league does. I learned how a, how that the USL gives so much help to their clubs on you know on the commercial aspects, on the marketing, on the ticketing, how to develop that business side. My role was to help them get to that level of sophistication on the sporting side because that had sort of been pushed to one side. It was more about the business than it was the sport. And I was just trying to flip that around. And, I mean, obviously, Merrick, you were on the record there when you took the job with the USL. I mean, that you wanted to enact and enable a medium to long-term strategy, which you were able to essentially lay the seeds and lay an awful lot of great groundwork over the course of two years and one fascinating thing for me about American sports has always been, and particularly what my football hat on now, is always seeing how the commercial side, <clears throat> excuse me, is a little bit more developed and far-reaching than the sporting, which you touched upon there. So obviously there has been little milestones such as going from zero to $1.5 million generating player sales, you know, the education of sporting directors and GMs regarding uh, the TDS scheme, so on and so forth. So... I mean, for me, what are some of the next key milestones viewing from the outside? Could we expect to see from the USL going forward to minimise that gap between the sporting and commercial sides? I think um, where I really wanted to take it was, was to implement the sporting director structure within clubs. Um, because, and, and I understand why they do it, but they, they tend to have the head coach coach is also the sporting director or the head coach is the technical director and it's purely from financial reasons um there's also part of it is you know when you're um when you're a head coach i guess there's, you have a lot of power um you know and you and you want to maintain that it's your it's your head that's on the block if the recruitment is wrong um but actually you know what's what a good sporting director does is is, is keep you safe, you know, because um, clubs are big, big animals now, um, you know, and they, they're only going to get bigger, especially in America as the as the growth continues. And one person can't do everything, you know. So it's a case of, you know, taking some of the noise away from the head coaches so that they can concentrate on exactly what it is that they're really good at. You know, they didn't go through three or four years of coaching badges to, you know, put out balls, bibs and cones. They went through three or four years of hard work to become a fully licensed coach so they could coach, you know, and it's, um, you know, part of my job is to make sure that the noise surrounding that is a lot less, you know, so they're not got agents ringing them up left, right and centre all the time trying to push players. You know, you have a head of recruitment for that. You know, and then also take a take some pressure off the chief exec and the board because you understand the budgets, you understand what you can and can't afford, so you understand how many players you can bring in, the level of the player, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, even down to the point of, you know, you don't want to be going to the chief exec saying, "Look, we need a new oven for the kitchen, or we need a new." Uh, television and monitor for the analyst department that 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 should already be taken care of so um you know i think for me the usl it needs to just can they can clubs improve the infrastructure and then also you know we, we were talking about promotion and relegation that, that was a big thing when when i was there 
And I think if they were to do that, they would differentiate themselves completely from the MLS. And, and teams in Europe would understand who they are a lot more. Um, so I think going forward for me, if I'd have stayed there, they'd, they'd have been two things that I'd have been really pushing hard on. And I mean, it sounds such an exciting and enticing project and something which you certainly relished. So I'm just curious as to what were the cer- set of circumstances to take you away back into club football and nonetheless working with Huddersfield Town? I think you, <laughs> if I'd have started at a league, um, I wouldn't have understood what a club environment was. I think, but to have come from the club environment where everything is, you're building a squad and then everything is about the Saturday or the Tuesday uh, or Wednesday, whatever that schedule that is that comes out. So I think for me, um, what pulled me back into it was I missed the games. I missed the passion of building towards the games. Um, I missed, you know, being part of developing a squad, building a squad and seeing that perform on a Saturday or a Tuesday um, and seeing that seen that growth on the ground, whereas the league is sort of in the big ivory tower and it's it's very much spread out across the country. And yes, you know, I mean, we had the, the rowdies on the doorstep, but that wasn't my team. You know, it, I wasn't building it. So I, I, I just missed the absolute passion that you get um, from, you know, from being within a club. Hmm. And I think, like I say, if, if you go from club to a league, I think you're going back to a club. I think it's probably, if I'd only ever been in a league, I don't think I would have ever transitioned back to being in a club. Do you know what I mean? I think it was, um, you just miss it. You do miss it. You miss the sort of feel of it and the taste of it and everything else that goes with it. So uh, that that's what drew me back. And going from the league back to the club, would you say you've noticed a great transition or a great change in terms of how you operate on a day-to-day basis? Um, I think, if I'm being perfectly honest, yeah. So, um, like I say, the you know when when I left Stoke, you you, you reflect. You know, you you should always take time to reflect on what's going on around you and how you've done. Uh, and the league came at a, a, a great point for me, and I, and I went there and I learned a hell of a lot. Um, and I don't think you can ever stop learning. I think if you think you know everything, then you're in a you're either a narcissist or you you've got problems. And I think. So I think to come back here now, um, having had, you know, just one month shy of eight years at Stoke and been through the ups and downs there, to then understand the league side of things and, and dealing with, with 40 different clubs, to then come back to this, I, I genuinely, I do feel like, yeah, I'm in a better place to be able to lead this. I'm in a better place to be able to help, you know, Darren Moore, who's our, our manager now, and, and, and all the departments around it. And as I... As I as I run this training ground and everything that goes along with that, I do feel that those two years at the USL, you know, really did help me become more rounded as a, as a sporting director. And, you know, as we begin to wrap up, obviously, I mean, you've been at the forefront of change regarding the sporting directorship position, um, not only limited to obviously the UK and whatnot, and some of the reoccurring themes I've noticed on this podcast from speaking to you, you've always sought, sought to, you know, refine and have your own competitive edge and um, openness to experience, building, playing infinite games within a finite system, really, that is football, of course. I mean, you know, in coalition with the future game, how do you see the future competencies and skill sets 
evolving or emerging from what will be the new sporting director position? Um, I think look, the, the old, if you go back 10 or 15 years, it, the, the sporting director was every, and this is the media. The media still want to have the perception that the, the manager is the main man um, and the sporting director really only does recruitment. Well, maybe that's what it started off as, as a, as a you know, recruitment, um, negotiations, you know, succession planning, but it, it's, it's built into more than that. And I think the next step is really more of a business understanding. And I think as, as we go forward and as, you know, the financial fair play rules change and the business aspects and the, and the sporting aspect become more interlinked, you know, it can't just be an owner writing a huge check. Thank you very much. It's now going to be, well, what, what are the, what is commercial bringing in? What is marketing bringing in? Have we got a full stadium? You know, um, because revenue is going to be vitally, vitally important to building the, the first team. And if you put, if you have a poor product on the pitch, then commercial definitely suffers. You know, ticketing definitely suffers. If you put a good product out, then it's easier for them to do. And I think the modern, the next generation of a modern sporting director moving forward is going to have to have a stronger business acumen than they probably had before. You know, it's not just going to be about how do we get the deals done and, you know, shady meetings in, you know, car parks and all the things that the press like to, you know, sort of blow up. I think it's going to be um, a more well-rounded edu business educated and sporting educated type of person. And with that being said, I mean, anyone who's the slightly bit inspired from listening to you today, American, would say to themselves, you know, I'd wish to thread a similar path to yourself. What would be the one bit of key advice you'd have for them? I, I would say, uh, if you're coming in from, you know, if you take the UCFB, you know, you have uh, students from all around the world that are, you know, learning and understanding the business of football, uh, and they have a great internship program. So if you're a, if you're a sort of younger student, can you, you know, what area is it that you like? Is it the analyst side? Is it the scouting side? We, we had a, a young man who came from UCFB. We had him, he was still at university and we, we had him as a scout and our head scout took him under his wing and showed him the role and what it entailed and what it meant. So by the time he got to the end of his um, studies and he graduated, we were in a position where he said, right, come in, you know, his full-time role. I think, you know, he's gone on and on and on to, to sort of better things and, you know, he's now head of recruitment at a, a good-sized championship club, you know, and he's still young enough to do that. So, you know, can you, <clears throat> and, I, and I said this, um, I spoke to a group of students, they've got to find their unique selling point to get that first step through the door. Don't be scared to approach, you know, a Greta Steinson or a me if you're at a convention. Don't be afraid to do that because at some point, somebody helped us get on that first rung. So... Don't be afraid to ask. That's the first thing. And, and push yourself for what is, what's unique about you? What is it you want to do? And how do you sell yourself? I think if you're somebody that's already within the game that wants to try and transition into something um, different, you know, the, the FA, the, you know, whatever FA it is, they all hold courses. You know, the, the, uh, the English FA do, you know, talent ID from level one all the way to, the technical direct course, which is the level five, which is the equivalent of the coach's pro license. So 
professionalize yourself, go through these different stages of understanding, of learning, of gaining your knowledge. But what it also does, is it opens up a huge network of people to you that you've never had before. And that's, again, a very important aspect of your growth and development is to network and to put yourselves into these positions. Put yourself out of your comfort zone. Go and, you know, go somewhere else. You, you'll know somebody somewhere. Go and see them. Put yourself out of your comfort zone. Ask questions and, and, and just become a bit more learned. Fantastic. Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the show today. Connor, and anytime, Connor. If it goes down well, I'll, I'll come back on again. If it doesn't, then uh, just text me and tell me. I'll have to hold you to round two, so. <laughs> no worries. <laughs>